I like how when Carl prayed and Vic earlier this morning, they pray that the messenger of God's word would be hidden. I feel like we have a literal answer to prayer up here. I feel very <laughs> enfolded. And uh, I want to say, you know, a couple of different things. First of all, thank you for, I know, Larry Budd and Lonnie, and I'm not sure who else helped make this. Isn't it just wonderful? I just want, to me, this is part of worship as well, to come in and to experience the beauty of God in his sanctuary. You know how the scriptures talk about the fact that God's name and his heart will dwell in his house forever. There's something to being in the sanctuary of God and experiencing his beauty, and I'm grateful for that. I'm feeling a little taller this morning. Can you see me over these? I think this is a, it's barely, barely, but I, I'm working. I, I'm all the way up to 5'4", I think, you know? <laughs> see, 53 years old and still growing. It's not a bad thing altogether. In all seriousness, I do want to say thank you for your prayers for Evie. I appreciate the support, the love, the kindness, the fact that you know, it's during these times I'm reminded of our own brokenness, our own dependence, and how much we need the body of Christ, how much we need the community of God. You know, I'm privileged and humbled to be able to be a teacher and uh, sit up here and kind of share the word of God with you all. But I'm very much a human being, and I very much need your prayers and your support and love, and I appreciate having a loving church. So thank you for your prayers for Evie. We really do appreciate it. And turn with me to God's word as we're continuing our series this Christmas season on Christmas hope. We have looked at already uh, so far out of Psalm 96, the anticipation of hope. How the entire creation was personified as singing and dancing and whole, you know, the choir just sang sing for joy. They're joining with the creation and singing for joy. Why? Because the Lord comes, comes to set everything right. We see how God works that in and through history, even sending a forerunner of hope. John the Baptist, preparing the way for the Lord. And this morning we're looking at Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 45. Passage of scripture, very familiar to us as part of the Christmas narrative. You know, there's only so many Christmas passages I can choose from. I'm not sure how appropriate it would be if I said, you know, let's, let's look at a passage out of Ezekiel this morning or something like that. So kind of traditional Christmas narrative focusing on the traditional term for it is the Annunciation meaning the announcement of the impending birth of the Savior from a Jewish teenage girl. Do you realize Mary was probably no more than 15 years old when this announcement? Can you just imagine her feelings and what she had to be going through as the angel Gabriel announces to her that she will give birth to her Lord and our Lord? I'm going to read Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 45. Let's pay attention and turn our hearts to the word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. and She exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This is God's word. Let me ask you a question to kind of get your mind thinking towards some application. And then I'll illustrate this question in just a second. How do you typically respond to an announcement? When somebody brings an announcement to you, whether it be of good news or bad news, or actually in the case of Mary, uncertain news. As we go through this text, think about how often she had to ponder, she had to discern, she was carefully thinking, she was asking questions about it. How do you typically respond to an announcement of news? Now for the illustration, you all know I'm a sports fan. Love all sports, yes, my Giants start at one o'clock today, but <laughs> My favorite sport is baseball. Out of all the sports, baseball's the one I grew up playing. Baseball's the one I grew up watching. And even during, I'll, I'll share something even from like this week when I spent time with Evie and she's recovering from her surgery and stuff. And what am I doing? I'm following the Yankees to see how they're doing. I'm watching for announcements of what they're, who they're signing in the offseason. And she came to realize, she says, it's called the hot stove season. She says, Jeff, what is, what is hot stove? And I said, the stove is sizzling. It's burning with news. And that's, so we're all watching, and I'm watching, and my, my reactions to announcements, the Boston Red Sox, they signed David Price. I had a bad reaction. <laughs> then the Arizona Diamondbacks, they signed Zach Greinke. Real bad reaction. Then the general manager for the New York Yankees, Brian Cashman, comes out and he announces, we're not signing any big-name players this year. Oh, you should have seen my reaction at that particular announcement. I was not a happy camper at that point in time. How do you react to any news you get? You know, we get news all the time. Big, small, everything in between. We go home, we read our papers, or we watch the news on TV. We go to a doctor, and we're nervous, and we're anxious about whatever news we might be getting. Life is filled with announcements of news. Here in Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel stands and reveals an announcement to Mary. And it's an announcement of hope. And an announcement of hope that has three components to it. There are three things we learn from this announcement of hope. We learn that hope is a person, intensely personal, not only transcendent. See, if it was only transcendent, you couldn't relate to it. And if it was only personal, it wouldn't have the power to really accomplish anything. But this hope is both transcendent and personal because this hope is a person. 
Second, this hope is a promise. There is a promise contained in this announcement. And lastly, this hope is a power. It is a power that frees you and frees you to bear fruit in a couple of different areas that we'll take a look at as we work through the text. Look with me, first of all, as we go through hope is a person. I want you to think about Christmas for a second and what we get excited about with Christmas. We get excited about all sorts of things. I love coming in and seeing the poinsettias and the sanctuary, singing the Christmas songs, doing all of that. Don't always get excited about the traffic out there. But we get excited. One of the things Evie gets most excited about, more than receiving gifts, she gets excited about giving gifts. She takes it so seriously to think through every member of our family and to think through what is their personality, what have they been through in the last year, what are their needs, and gets very creative about all that. The greatest gift we get is the gift of a person. For God so loved the world. So we know that verse. Do we ever, I want you to break it down and think about it very slowly, that he gave, he sent, he took the initiative. Rory read in the Advent reading this morning out of Galatians chapter 4, when the time had fully come, when the time in history was ripe, it was perfect, it was full, God sent his son. He's also sent the spirit of his son. Christmas is all about sending, all about initiative, all about giving. Now look with me at verses 32, and let's look at this person that hope is. Verse 32 says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Down in verse 35, he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. Listen to the descriptions of this person. He's eternal, he's holy, he's great, he reigns, he's a king, he has a kingdom. He will be called the son of God. Think about this. And, the, and Gabriel, the angel, says to Mary, how will this come? When Mary asks, how's this going to happen? I'm a virgin, I'm a young girl. How's this going to happen? He gives this mysterious phrase, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And that's a very peculiar and interesting phrase. Scholars, commentators tell us that what this is doing is alluding back to the Exodus, alluding back to the story, that narrative, where the people of God were freed from Egypt, brought after their freedom from slavery into the wilderness. How were they led? They were led by the glory of God appearing to them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And when the tabernacle was built symbolizing the dwelling, the very presence of the glory of God in their midst. How did that glory of God appear to them and overshadow them? It overshadowed them in a cloud and in fire. Notice what the angel is saying to Mary. The presence of the Most High will overshadow of you. This birth is nothing less than caused by and conceived by the glory of God. The very glory of the presence of God is what leads to this conception. And it's interesting to note, commentators remind us that what Mary does is she doesn't immediately respond with her song, the Magnificat, that comes in verse 46. But what does she do? She goes and she visits Elizabeth, who was six months pregnant with John the Baptist. And it's Elizabeth who is starting to understand the amazing, remarkable claim that is being made here. 
Tim Keller brings out, let me read from him. He says, beginning at verse 43, when, Mary, when Elizabeth says, why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Dr. Keller points out, listen to those words, the mother of my Lord. And what is Elizabeth saying? What is Elizabeth showing us here? Elizabeth is showing us that the one who is in Mary's womb right now is as much the Lord as the Father in heaven. He writes, how could she be the mother pregnant with the person who sent, who initiated the sending of the angel? The Lord sent you the angel, and yet you were the mother of my Lord. At this point, what Elizabeth is showing us is that the one who was born in your womb is every bit as holy and as divine as the Lord, as is the Father in heaven. The one in your womb is every bit divine, every bit deity, every bit the Lord. Do you hear the remarkable claim that is being made here. Dr. Keller writes, what Elizabeth is showing us is that Christmas is making a claim that is absolutely category shattering. What Elizabeth is telling us, what the text tells us is that on Christmas Day, the infinite became finite. The immortal became mortal. The omnipotent literally became impotent because the creator of the universe became a single cell, the most weak and small version of life in the universe. The ideal became real. The supernatural became natural. The metaphysical became physical. The invulnerable became vulnerable. How do you respond to an announcement like that? Do you see that the gift and the hope is a person, and a person who became vulnerable? Which leads us to the second point, the fact that hope is a promise. That's a promise of what? I want to look at at least two areas here. It's a hope, first of all, that gives us the promise of transformation. Now, I need to be very careful here because there's a couple dangerous areas that we could get into, and I want to be real clear in the teaching here. When we talk about transformation, we're not being utopian. We're not being triumphalistic. Transformation, and you hear me say this, is part of our sanctification. You need to hear, I think you ought to memorize by now the phrase, already but not yet. Now, the not yet doesn't take much convincing, does it? Do you really need to be convinced of the not yet? As, we, as Carl prayed through the list of prayer requests, as we're facing, you know, as he prayed for our world leaders who are facing trials, as we face the insecurity and the uncertainty, we know that the days are evil. We know the not yet is easy, but do we recognize the power of the already in our life? The fact that verse 33 says of his kingdom, and his kingdom comes already. He's inaugurated. The word inaugurate means begin. The not yet is because he hasn't completed it. He hasn't consummated it. But friends, don't deny the beginning of the kingdom. Don't deny the beginning of it. And that kingdom has no end. And what does that mean for our day-to-day -day lives? What, what practical implication does that make for our lives? Let me give you a couple of just areas where we can be experiencing some of the already of the kingdom of God as a result of the incarnation. The first is the area of our relationships. What does it mean that God took on flesh and became vulnerable? for our relationships. Tim Keller again shares it like this. He says, 
the following illustration. He says, picture two parties, could be a husband and wife, could be, you know, families, whatever, just pick, but, but they're in conflict. They're in conflict. And he says, here's how typically our conflict might go. One party says, you're to blame. The other party says, no, you're to blame. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. If only you did this. No, if only you did this. Blame, 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 blame. And what happens to the relationship? Certainly doesn't heal, does it? There's no opportunity for it to even begin to heal. If neither side will budge an inch, if neither side will make a concession, if neither side will take any blame or will admit, neither side will drop the defenses, you will never have a reconciliation of a relationship. He, said as, he says at every point, as long as the defenses are up, the relationship is going away. But what if one party becomes even the slightest bit vulnerable? And here's what he means. He says, what if even you have two parties, and what if the other party is 95% wrong? 95%, they're too fragile, they're overreacting, they're oversensitive, they have thin skin. Whatever the issue, they're 95% wrong. The bottom is, we're still two parties who both have not yet. Which means what? Our best, our holiest, our greatest motives, our greatest love. I can speak the truth and love all I want, and I will always be mixed. There will always be a mixture, so I can never 100% blame. So as a result, he says, what if one person or one party will just admit that little bit, make yourself vulnerable, and drop the defenses? So as one's going, it's you, it's you, it's you, what if one party goes, yeah, it's me? I see the kernel of truth in what you're saying. Tell me how that makes you feel. Tell me how that impacts you. Tell me how what I, even the 5% that I may own, yes, they may still have a lot of all sorts of stuff. And what does it take to do that? It takes being incarnational. It takes the infinite becoming finite. It be, takes the omnipotent being impotent. It takes the invulnerable being vulnerable. What did the incarnation mean? God entered and fleshed himself in this world. He didn't stay distant from it. He became involved in it. That will always involve pain. That will always involve hurt. Vulnerability always involves hurt. If you want to stay safe, don't become vulnerable. But as C.S. Lewis put it, he says, if you want your heart to never be broken, give it to no one. If you don't want your heart to be broken, if you don't want to ever get hurt, then don't be vulnerable. Don't give it away. Protect it. Build a wall around it. Put all the defenses around it. He goes on to say that your heart will be unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. See, there is no way to have relationship, communion, real connection, intimacy, without vulnerability. And the incarnation, see, hope is a promise. The promise of God becoming vulnerable. The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Are you practicing incarnational re relationship? Are you even interested in practicing incarnational 
relationship, of mirroring the incarnation in how, do you, how you relate to spouse, children, grandchildren, friends, neighbors, members of the church? Can you be secure enough in the love of Christ to drop the defenses and enter into other people's lives? Hope is a promise, and it can impact our relationships. Briefly, a second area it can impact is it gives us a resource for suffering. Listen to this quote from Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers wrote, The incarnation means that for whatever reason God chose to let us be limited to suffer to be subject to sorrows and even death. Yet, he has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He asks nothing from us that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain, humiliation, defeat, despair, and even death. He was born in poverty, died in disgrace, suffered infinite pain, and all for us. That quote is fascinating because one of the things it tells us very honestly is that the incarnation means that for whatever reason God chose to let us be limited, suffer, experience pain and death, he didn't give us the why to all of our sin. Yes, we know it's due to the fall and due to sin, but he doesn't tell us the why behind everything. When Job was going through all of his suffering. Yes, he met Job in the whirlwind, didn't he? And he said, Job, uh, guess, guess what? It's time to put on the big boy pants. I'm meeting with you now. I think we could tell some of the reason we uh, don't always want to commune at an intimate level with God. He's dangerous. He will meet with us. He will challenge us. He will contradict us. He will transform. Hope is a promise of transformation. So even though he didn't tell Job and he doesn't tell us every reason for suffering, what does he do? He gives us a resource. That resource is Jesus, and that resource is the promise that he will set everything right. Throughout Evie's illness, one of our favorite verses, and I try to read it and pray it to her all the time through this, is Isaiah 63, verse 9. Isaiah 63, verse 9, which is more about the anticipation of hope. The prophet is speaking about the new Jerusalem and what God is going to do in the new Jerusalem. But in verse 9, he says, In all there, meaning our, as the people of God's affliction, he was afflicted. Do you know what that means? And it's because of the reality and the fulfillment of it, the New Testament verse that we read out of Colossians 1 that Shane read for us a few minutes ago, where it talks about he is the head of the body, the church, the firstborn of all creation. The head's always connected to the body, which means it's, they're united, right? And that means in everything we go through, every trial, every affliction, every turmoil, every loss, every grief, every pain, every confusion, every turmoil, every doubt, in all of our affliction, he's not just there from a distance helping us. He's actually united to us going through it himself. In all their affliction, he himself was afflicted. He's going through the very pain, the very uncertainty the resource we have for suffering is Jesus himself. Think about that, what that means. 
Hope is a promise. Lastly, hope is a power. Look with me one more time at Mary in this text. And I just want to show you a couple of different ways where the power of hope freed her for a brutal honesty. This is a pretty amazing thing, and we see it in a couple of different areas. First of all, if you look with me, it begins verse 28. It says, when he came up to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. What was her initial reaction? Verse 29 says, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. You know, the scriptures tell us that this is part of her answer of faith. Mary is responding in faith, but I want you to notice something. Faith will always be thoughtful. Faith will always think out the implications of something. Commentators tell us that the word here that's used for discern literally means to logically think through something, to seriously analyze. The power of hope is freeing her so that she can avoid two dangers. One, she could avoid what we'd call blind faith. That doesn't think through things out, and as a result, doesn't lead to much in the way of transformation. And the other danger that is that of being paralyzed by doubt and a rebellious doubt, a doubt that says, that can't be. Mary shows true faith in that she is thinking through She's processing. She's thinking about the possibilities, the categories. She's, she's recognizing all these. See, you have to think. Recognize faith is always more than thinking, but never less than thinking. And she's pondering these things through. And even in verse 34, when she says, how will this be? That's not a rebellious doubt, but that's a questioning. She's seeking to understand. That's faith seeking understanding. And how do we know that? We know that because of what it says here for us in verse 38. Right after, the, it says, for nothing will be impossible with God, Mary says, behold. So now here's her ultimate response. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Notice that because what is this? This is resigned surrender. But resigned surrender is not passivity. She is resigned in her surrender. Behold, who am I? Who's my identity? Who, who am I? I'm the bondservant. I'm a slave of the Lord. And that leads to freedom. That lets me process. One of the things, I'm not preaching on this this morning, but as you read through the Lucan narratives of the birth and the early life of Jesus, one of the verses I love is how many times Luke records for us, and Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. Read through these things this Christmas season. I want you to notice how many times Luke records for us that Mary treasures, ponders. That is a deep faith that is set free by a resigned surrender. She said, how will this be? I don't get it. Lord, I don't understand. That's not the opposite of faith. I think that's evidence of faith because it comes with a heart that's recognizing the vulnerability of God, that God was sending this son, this person, for her and for us. And she's surrendered. This is who I am. I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me. Whatever you say, whatever you determine, whatever you decide is right for me. Have you come to that point in your life 
where you have a resigned surrender that gives you courage to face your fears, to kind of lean into them, to seek the Lord for such a deep community? Do you trust enough in the justice of God, in the forgiveness of God? Do you trust it enough that that power of hope, is it a power in your life that it frees you to have faith seeking understanding from a surrendered heart? We have a lot to learn from Mary, don't we? Let's turn our hearts to the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for this announcement. How do we respond to the announcement of this news? Do we recognize that hope is a person? That hope became ultimately vulnerable for us. And that hope is a promise, the promise of transformation, inaugurated and begun now, consummated and completed at your return. And that hope is a power. And if we surrender to that power in our life, that we have been able to say with Mary, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. I don't belong to myself. Mary didn't even have the opportunity to name her own baby. The angel said, you will name him. She she didn't even have that that own authority. Have we given over the authority for our lives to Jesus? And do we give that authority over every day? Thank you for the teaching of your word. Thank you for the transcendent and yet imitant nature of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.